Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Happy Monday. I love Mondays. Always nice to get the week started. This is the first Monday of the month where I get to have my conversation with uh, Professor Ken Samples. And he's got a brand new book we're going to be talking about today called Christianity Cross-Examined. Is it rational, relevant, and good? Which is always interesting because when you talk to people about the Lord or their experience with God, the two things that often pop up is... Is, he, is God good, and can he be trusted? So we're going to talk about all kinds of things with Ken today. He is a, not only a philosopher, but a theologian. He's a great passion to help people understand the reasonableness and relevance of Christianity's truth claims. He's a senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe, so you can go to reasons.org to learn more about Ken, and also is the author of several books, including Classic Christian Thinkers, Seven Truths That Changed the World, and God Among Sages. Always glad to have Ken back on the show. Ken, welcome. Hey, Bill. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you for asking, and I hope uh, all is well with you, and happy summer. I'm doing, doing fine. Thank you. Yeah. It's not a big deal to say to someone in Southern California, happy summer. <laughs> I feel like a fool. But anyway, you, you get the point, don't you? It's a little warmer here, I'll bet, than where you are. I want to say it's in the mid-90s today here, so it's pretty hot. Wow. Yeah. Well, you're, we're about equal, I think. Yeah, yeah. Hey, nice work, uh, Christianity Cross-Examined. I've been going through it, and it's uh, wonderful material. Some of it's uh, I want to talk about today. So glad to have you on the show. Well, thank you, and thank you for taking a read through the book. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, a lot of things caught my attention, and um, I've got a bunch of questions. But one thing that just jumped off the page is why is science so highly esteemed in modern society? Yeah, that's a very important question because we live at a time, uh, like you say, where uh, I think I, I say in the book that it's we place it on a pedestal. And I, I think it's probably for two reasons, Bill. One, because science and technology, medicine have made such advancements that People all around the world have benefited from it. I mean, if you were born into the world in 1900 in America and you were a white male, your life expectancy was only 47 years. If you're born today and you're a female and maybe you're a Seventh-day Adventist, meaning that you give real place to help uh, ideas, you might double the 47. A, a big part of that is science, medicine, technology. So I think that's one reason. I think another reason, however, is that many people look at science and they think that it has no beliefs. Um, you know, you just, you just practice the scientific enterprise and you get results. But the truth of the matter is that science involves a lot of beliefs. Uh, you have to have, the, you have, to have a, a science uh, world, conducive world, you have to have human beings that are able to uh, 
track the ability of science, and uh, you have to have a kind of a logical or mathematical congruence. And so um, I had a debate with a scientist up in Fresno, California, and the scientist said, as a scientist, I have no beliefs. And I said, well, wait a minute here. I said, don't you believe there's a real world out there? Don't you believe that there's design and patterns, uh, regularity? I said, don't you believe that your cognitive faculties and your sensory organs work properly? Don't you believe in the validity of logic and math? I said, you have a lot of beliefs. Now, here's the, here's where I think Christianity can, can shine through. Uh, that conducive world and those assumptions fit well with, with the biblical revelation. And I think when we talk about science, I always know that there is a second, third, fourth opinion to science because in medicine, for example, you get a diagnosis of some kind. And the first thing people say to you is, we should go get a second opinion. Right. So if there's scientist A that comes out and says, this is what I believe, and scientist B says something different from scientist A, what do you do in those situations? Who do you buy? And I, I, I think what we, what we want to say in that context is that science, it, it has, it's provisional. That is, scientific knowledge is always moving, always changing. Um, and of course, and I think this is, the, this is the point of your comment, and that is um, even if we draw the data, the data has to be interpreted uh, it has to be applied properly. You know, I mean, um, even even our scientific instruments are not perfect. And uh, so anybody who appreciates the value of science also recognizes its limits. All right, Ken, let's uh, jump more into your book, um, Christianity Examined. How can one possibly define a religious experience? Yeah, it's a, it, it, it's a tough question. Um, there's, I think, a, a very clear, direct answer by a philosopher and theologian named Ed Miller. He was a professor at uh, University of Southern California, which is a distinguished school here on the West Coast. And in that book, he said this. Here's his definition of a religious experience. He says, quote, an immediate, direct, and personal confrontation with the divine. So a, a immediate direct encounter with God would be his description of a religious experience. Hmm. Well, so that's that's a place to start, huh? And I and I think and I think that uh, people in differing religions, people in differing points of view, that that's kind of a beginning start. That's a starting place. Somebody had. An experience, and they interpret it as a direct and immediate and personal encounter with God. From a Christian point of view, we would say, "Well, we we had an experience with God. We had an experience with the Lord," and that's kind of uh, not well defined. But yeah, I think that's kind of the beginning place. Mm-hmm. So, Ken, don't the world's religions have somewhat different types of encounters with the divine? Oh, yes. Um, I think we could probably make points here, Bill. I'm going to describe as religions of revelation. So Judaism, 
Christianity and even Islam, they say God has revealed himself in the world. He has given scripture. Um, in the Old and New Testament, we have uh, Moses and, and Abraham and all of the great Hebrew uh, patriarchs and prophets experiencing Yahweh, and then later it's written down to reflect the Torah, the law, or the Pentateuch, the entire Old Testament writings. In the New Testament, Jesus has encounters with uh, his apostles. Only later is it written down in Gospels, epistles. And even in Islam, there is the belief that uh, Muhammad received a revelation from God. So that revelatory idea would be one way people experience God. Another way is what I would call uh, kind of a universal sense of the divine or the supernatural. You know, you're just you're taking a trip on, in driving through the desert, or you're you know you're alone. Um, and you, you have this awareness of God's presence. Uh, John Calvin, in his writings, talked about the sensus divetitatis, Latin for the sense of the divine, an awareness of God. According to Romans 1, it seems everybody has that, although, although maybe we want to shut it down. And then thirdly, Bill, there would be mystical encounters, and this is very different. This would be Hinduism, Taoism. A Shintoism, where where you might become one with God, you may you may ontologically become one with God. So this was this would be mystical, uh, and very very much in the Eastern orientation. So when people say they've experienced God, you probably want to ask some further questions. Absolutely, and I think it's it's so helpful, Ken, when we start to understand the thought process of some people from other spiritual backgrounds, even people who are atheists will make comments or make claims regarding God's relationship to science. What are they? Yeah, well, you know, people will, uh, people often say a lot of things. Uh, in, in fact, um, sometimes leading scientists, and quite a few of these leading scientists are very secular in in orientation, but, you know, they will, they'll make philosophical comments about God, like, you know, they will say that, um, you know, that, that science makes God unnecessary, or they'll say something like, you don't need God to explain the universe. Uh, mm. But they're, they're not thinking, I think, really carefully about a lot of those things, or they'll say something like this, you know, philosophy's dead. Nobody takes philosophy and religion seriously. It's only science. Well, that's a philosophical statement in and of itself. So when we talk about God, either philosophically or theologically or scientifically, we want to be very clear and careful uh, in our thinking. Ken Samples is my guest. We're going to take a little break. We'll come back lots more on his new book, Christianity Examined. If you have a question for Ken, or maybe you heard something you need clarification on, we always love doing that on this show, making sure you clearly understand and hear what has been said. 877-933-2484 is the number to text your question or comment over. Love to hear from you. 
This show is all about you, so let me know what your thoughts are. 877-933-2484. Be right back. Lots more with Ken Samples. Ken Samples. He's our guest for the full hour. We're talking about his new book, Christianity Examined, and he is uh, not only a philosopher, but a theologian. He's at reasons.org. You can go check that out there. Author of several books. This is his latest. Uh, You referenced uh, one of Gary Habermas's uh, books, Dealing with Doubt, which I've always enjoyed his, the three different types of doubt. I think my listeners would love if you would expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I really uh, Gary is a good friend and and a terrific scholar in uh, writing and talking about uh, particularly the resurrection of Jesus. But uh, he had doubts as a young man, and he became aware that uh, doubts are fairly common among people. Even people who are very devout have doubts, and. So Gary says, look, there are different kinds of doubts. You know, sometimes maybe a person has doubts because they don't have the facts, the data, the information. So so maybe when you're talking about Christianity, uh, they have doubts about Jesus and God and Christianity because they're not be they haven't been presented with uh you know the facts about Jesus's life and uh, the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection but Habermas goes further he says you know people have doubts for other reasons uh you know sometimes they have kind of inner doubts psychological doubts um some people find it hard uh, maybe to trust people and uh, you know if if I'm going to believe in God, I'm going to, I mean, the very word faith in the New Testament, the root of that word, uh, the verb is pistuo, the noun is pistis. It means it means confident trust in a reliable source. Well, you know, sometimes people have had some tough experiences in life, and uh, they have a hard time trusting people. And then you can have you can have existential doubts, doubts that kind of relate, you know, to your kind of your inner sense of being. And Bill, what I like to tell people is, um, I think doubts are fairly common. I don't necessarily think that they're, you know, a sign that something's wrong. You know, people that think and think carefully, they're going to have doubts. And, And part of that is because we're finite creatures. We have limitations and we have boundaries. And, uh, when you think critically, when you think toughly about, you know, vigorously about things, you're going to have doubts. Uh, and there are ways of dealing with those doubts. Maybe uh, maybe it's spending more time in God's Word. Maybe it's talking to somebody about some of the, you know, the relevant issues. And, uh, you know, Bill, I actually think a lot of people's doubt is not intellectual. 
I think it's kind of psychological or existential, if you will. Yeah, I would agree. I was talking to a guy a couple of weeks ago, and he said to me, if you bring up the idea that Jesus is the only way, then I'm out of here. I don't have time for that. And I yeah. said, I said, well, you're actually making a truth claim about God because you don't like the yeah. truth claim that Jesus is the only way. And you're telling me that if you make that statement, I'm out of here. So you're making your own truth claim about God, that that can't be the answer. Yeah, you're, you know, you're essentially saying, I'm only going to come to God on my terms. Exactly. Not his terms. And that usually doesn't work out very well. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? But yeah. pe- people do have uh, factual doubt and plenty of emotional doubt because of past experiences, whether or not they recognize that they were injured or damaged or got bad information. You know, a lot of the times you have to unlearn some bad information about God. I mean, you go take a golf lesson, the first thing that the golf pro does is he deconstructs your swing. And you're going, hey, I used to be able to hit the ball pretty well, and now I can't hit it at all. Yeah. He's going to break it down, and he's going to build you back up. Exactly. And we, people have all kinds of ideas about God. You know, they're, the conversations they've had with people on the street or maybe uh, bad experiences or, you know, people have—they've heard stories that are not that are not accurate. And so uh, you're right. A very important part of it is getting the getting the picture straight. Yeah. I'll sometimes say to people, uh, describe to me the God you rejected. And they're Uh usually pretty willing to do that. You know, my mom died of cancer when I was nine. And who how could I trust that God? I go, okay, there you go. There's we got a place to talk now. We got some places where we can start the conversation. Yeah. I mean, that's for somebody to say that, I mean, they're opening up. They're talking about something that it has, is very meaningful uh, to them, and, and they're talking about pain. Right. Uh, Ken, let's talk about the ways to test whether a person's religious experience is, is spiritually authentic. I, I never, I never want to, uh, you know, challenge somebody's spiritual experience. If, you know, if that's near and dear to them, Great, but sometimes uh, how do we how do we test it? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I'm, I'm looking at First John chapter four, verse one, and John says, he says, "Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world." Uh, and then he says, "This is how you can recognize the spirit of God." and he talks about Jesus coming in the flesh. Now, what I think is interesting about this passage, Bill, in light of your question is a lot of times people think that religious people, and maybe even especially Christian people, that it's easy believism. We believe anything or everything. Whereas when you open up the pages of Scripture, you realize that one of the virtues, intellectual virtues that's important, is discernment being careful. You know, uh, Christian faith is not blind faith. It's it's not putting your trust in anything or everything. It's putting your faith in a, in a credible source. Now, that credible source can be God. It can be Christ. could be your parents. It could be uh, the chair I'm sitting in that it's going to, you know, hold me up. I, I think what's interesting, though, is that 
people can have very unusual spiritual experiences. So from a Christian point of view, of course, we would ask, is uh, is your experience, does it comport biblically? Is it Christ-centered? Or we may ask, you know, does it comport with the truth claims of Christianity? Uh, Christians believe in the Trinity. Uh, And what I think is interesting is every single non-Christian group denies the Trinity, and they deny salvation by grace. So in some ways, we're we're asking some doctrinal questions at this point. Now, here's here's another interesting element. Um, One of the great theologians in Christian history was Jonathan Edwards. And of course, he lived in America when it was colonial America, uh, in the early 1700s, and he was part of a religious revival that rocked the colonies. It also rocked England, and people were having experiences, religious experiences, and churches were filled to, you know, filled up completely. And Edwards was a preacher, uh, and he started analyzing this movement, and he began wondering, you know, so many people are having religious experiences. How do I know that they're correct? And he kind of developed a a, a way of evaluating. He said, uh, "Does does your religious experience lead to genuine holiness? Does does your experience has it led you to to sincerely seek after God? You're you're not after what God can give you. You're you want you want the Lord. You want God." Uh, does it give you a deep-seated conviction? Hey, I know I've encountered the Lord. I have confidence. Then he talks about humility. Wow. I mean, uh, that's a very powerful virtue, and I can tell you it's hard to hold on to. But does does your spiritual conviction lead you to a sense of humility, that I'm, uh, I'm a limited being? Uh, God is this grand being. And then he also talks about other ideas like a willingness to forgive and uh, and again the idea that that faith expresses itself in in works of goodness. So I think it's interesting that Edwards kind of looked at a criteria based upon scripture and kind of worked through these things because again as John says in 1 John you could have counterfeit spiritual experiences. I mean, the Bible talks positively about experiencing God, experiencing Christ, but it also talks about false gods and false Christs and false gospels. So Edwards, I think, developed this kind of criteria saying, here's a way we can kind of look at the fruit of this religious experience. Mm Ken, I want to go to break. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, faith and in the Christian context, how it is so compatible with reason. And yeah. I've got a, uh, a vivid memory of uh, Chuck Colson's book, Born Again, when he said he sat outside his friend's driveway and he said, a rash of reason came over me the night he got wow. saved. We'll talk about that when we come back. Ken Samples is my guest. We're talking about his book, Christianity Examined. Be right back. It's the afternoon show with 
Of every month, I get an hour with Ken Samples, and I'm always looking forward to it because I learn so much. He's a philosopher and theologian. Reasons.org is where you can go learn more about Ken. He's written several books, uh, including Classic Christian Thinkers, Seven Truths That Changed the World, and God Among Sages. His most recent is Christianity Examined. Ken, so in a Christian context, um, let's talk about faith and how it's complementary and compatible with reason. Right before break, I talked about reading Chuck Colson's Born Again uh, book, and he said he had left his friend's house, who had just shared Christ with him, got into his car, and he said, a rash of reason came over me. Like, this is Mm -hmm. the most reasonable thing for me to do, is to commit and turn my life over to Christ. Yeah, it's really interesting. Five minutes before the show, I was uh, was reading about Chuck Colson. It's kind of interesting. Um, you know, one of the points I make in the book is that faith and reason are compatible. They fit together. They're like uh, peanut butter and chocolate. You know, they go together. Now, a lot of people don't think so, Bill. A lot of people think <laughs> that, you know, faith is uh, believing what you know ain't true. But in Christianity, um, the very definition of faith involves a rational component, Uh I would define faith this way, confident trust in a credible or reliable source. So the root of the word faith is trust. But again, it's not in anything or everything. It's trust in Christ. Why? Because he's done the miracles. Because of the resurrection, he's fulfilled prophecy. So again, the very definition of faith involves a rational component. It's it's uh, certainly not, um, you know, just putting your, your trust and faith in any particular thing. But we could also say, though, Bill, that faith involves knowledge. I mean, to be a Christian, you have to actually know information, factual information constituting knowledge about the person of Christ, that he was a real historical person that he made claims about himself, that he, you have to know about his life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection. And so faith is not at odds with knowledge. It, it is consistent with reason. Uh, it involves knowledge. Uh, we, could, uh, we could further say that, uh, you know, when you think about reason, well, well, what what kind of grounds reason? I mean, let, let's compare very briefly a Christian theistic view of the world versus a atheistic naturalistic view of the world. The Christian would say that reason caused the cosmos. A mind caused the cosmos. Uh, God is that infinite mind, and He created the world with with namos and logos, with with logic and and laws. But if we flip it and say that we hold an atheist view, well, then um, then nature caused the mind. But that, that means that the mind came from the mindless. Reason came from non, the non-rational. The personal resulted from the non-personal. 
I mean, if extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and I'm not sure they do, but if that's a claim that's made, I would say atheism is making some amazing claims. Mm-hmm. And, and we're supposed to be the ones who, you know, appeal to, to miracles. Um, and I would say one more thing about faith and reason, Bill. Uh, reason, reason cannot fully comprehend uh, everything about faith. I mean, I've studied the Trinity for many years, and I've written about it and debated Muslims and various people about the Trinity. I can never fully understand the mystery of the Trinity or the incarnation or the atonement of the resurrection, but that doesn't mean that I can't have clear, careful, cogent ideas about those truths. And it certainly doesn't mean that I can't know the members, the persons of the Trinity. So... I think through the centuries, Christians by and large have they've prized reason, and they see reason and faith as being compatible with another. Now, does that mean that there are no Christians who are anti-intellectual? No, there, you know, uh, there are Christians who kind of emphasize faith to the exclusion of reason, but I don't think that characterizes historic Christianity as a whole. Mm-hmm. Ken, this might sound a little bit like a softball question. Uh, but I would like for your brain to explain how the New Testament invites people to investigate the Christian faith. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a very important point for people who, who maybe don't know the New Testament well, or maybe they've never read it, never been you know exposed to it. I mean, what the apostles do is, uh, you know, they they say things like. The Apostle Paul is talking to some of the Greeks and Romans, and he says, look, you know, the resurrection wasn't, wasn't done in a corner. There, there are eyewitnesses, uh, you know, Peter, James, and John. It, it seems that when the apostles are preaching and teaching, they say, hey, look, uh, there are people who are, who are eyewitnesses. You can talk with them. Moreover, we're also told, you know, to Take a look at the life of Jesus. Look at the way he lived his life. Look at his extraordinary moral virtues. And then look at the things he did in light of some of the Hebrew predictions about the coming of the Messiah. So we're invited to, to test the truth claims. Now, here's, here's what the Apostle Paul says in, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul says, test all things and hold on to the good. So again, Christian faith, as it's been understood since the time of the New Testament forward, says it's okay to, it's okay to test things. It's okay to look into it, evaluate it, don't accept it blindly. And, and I think there are numerous ways in which we're told to, uh, in which we're told to invite people to take a look at the faith. Mm-hmm. So nice comments coming in from listeners, Ken. Uh, Carolyn said, as a person who loves to know how things work, I've always thought that science was God's way of showing us how he put things together. I never thought that science took God's place, which is probably increasingly more common in, in, the, in, in the world today. And Sean had and a I comment. Think if you, oh, go ahead. Uh, go ahead. No, you go ahead, please. Uh, I was just going to simply say that I think when you look historically, uh, it was the Christian worldview in the 17th century in Europe 
that birthed the enterprise of science. Uh, virtually all of the founding fathers of science are Christian or Jew. And it is that kind of philosophy that, you know, the, the world, it came from a reasonable mind. Uh, math and logic are tools. And, and so it's easy to see why science could and should be valued in a Christian context. Now, you know, there are times where I think Christians feel that science kind of goes against their faith, and they're a little suspicious of science. But historically, and I think philosophically, Bill, science and Christianity have always been much more allies than ever enemies. Yeah, I would agree. Another question, uh, John said, please comment on the difference, the differences between observational science, like chemistry and physics, compared to historical science, like the Big Bang and evolution theory. Should they be treated with equal validity based on the data? That's really a very fine question. I agree. Smart listeners. Absolutely. You know, science is a, science involves the observation. You know, it is it is uh, it, it's empirical in nature. It's seeing, measuring, weighing, uh, etc. Uh, there are theories, uh, you know, that are less empirical in nature, uh, and they have to be they have to be evaluated very carefully, but. Uh, I agree with the point that's being made, that uh, science is very strong in terms of observation. Now, you know, there are times where people build models of explanation, and those models extend beyond just kind of direct empirical observation. But I think the, the, the bigger point here is that science is an enterprise that has to be done very carefully, uh, very critically. Um, and uh, you know, you don't fudge the data. You you have to have you have to have great honesty. And again, those are virtues we care a lot about as Christians. Mm-hmm. Ken, if you would define sheer nothingness, and and why is an understanding of this concept significant? Yeah, it's 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 a very interesting thing. I have a I have a chapter in the book where I say if God creates, it's a question. If God created all, who created God? And, uh, you know, uh, my son, when he was in kindergarten, asked me that question, but atheists asked that question. Stephen Hawking, Richard Dawkins, uh, some of the leading secular scientists asked that type of question. And what I, what I deal with uh, in there is I say, look, uh, you know, if anything now exists, and I think we're pretty confident of that, then something must be eternal, or something that wasn't eternal emerged from nothing. Now, all I want to convey very carefully there is is this: Did the cosmos we live in did it did it come into being uh, from a cause, a personal cause that brought the universe into existence? Well, that's the, that's the biblical perspective. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Hebrew there, heavens and earth, means the totality of all things. Well, if, uh, if there is no God and there is no mind behind the universe and we're alone here on planet earth, then where did everything come from? Um, did it come from nothing? Now, think about nothing. Um, no matter— no energy, no space, no time. 
no potential, no actual, no logic, no mathematics. Um, people who are thinking carefully and critically, Bill, they know that nothing, something cannot come from sheer nothingness. And so when people say, look, you know, I, I just have this common sense sense that God exists because I think he explains the world. I think that's, that shows a great deal of, of just that, common sense. Mm-hmm. Ken, we're going to take a break here in a couple minutes, but can you talk about, I know you talk about this in your book, but the, the, the three most compelling evidences for Jesus's resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. Would you like me to do that now or after the break? Or? I think after the break. It's a little bit of a okay. cliffhanger. Keeps Very people good. on their toes, like which it. is the goal always, right? I think that's what they call it. Anyway, we'll take a break. A break. We'll be back with Ken Samples in just a minute. Back to the show. Ken Samples is my guest this hour. I'm loving our time together. We're talking about his new book, Christianity Examined. Right before the break, Ken, I asked you about the three most compelling evidences for Jesus's resurrection. Yeah, I mentioned twenty in the book pieces of evidences, but I'm I'm just going to give you three. Okay. Uh, and I think they are right at the core. Um, the first one is that we know that the tomb in which Jesus was buried in, remember he's crucified under Pontius Pilate, uh, he dies a public death, then he's taken down from the cross and his body is laid in a tomb. We know whose tomb it was. It, you know, if we if we take the New Testament seriously, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, well, on Sunday morning, the tomb's empty. Now, uh, all you got to do to disprove Christianity is produce the body, but they couldn't. The tomb was empty, and we know it was empty because even the people who were hostile toward Christianity, they said, well, we'll, 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 make up, we'll tell them the disciples came and stole the body. Well, this, this tomb is empty. It is uh, very very early truth in in Christianity, uh, and other explanations like women went to the wrong tomb. None of that. None of that helps. We know where the tomb is, and the body is is no longer there. Now, if you add to that a second point, people are having experiences. They they are even though Jesus had been publicly crucified in Jerusalem under the authority of Pontius Pilate. Uh, on on Friday, people begin seeing Jesus alive uh, over a period of 40 days. And Paul the Apostle says he saw him. Um, James, which made one—I mean, here, I'll give you three very skeptical people. Um, 
First of all, Paul, he's Saul of Tarsus. He's hostile to Christianity. He kind of sees it as a cult. He'd like to get rid of it. He persecutes Christians. He becomes the greatest um, uh, evangelist, the greatest preacher of Christianity. He became. He becomes. He authors half of the New Testament. Why? Because he had a direct encounter with Jesus. That's that's what he said. Now let me introduce two other people. Another one is James. This is the brother of Jesus, and uh, we're told in the New Testament that Jesus's family became uncomfortable with him. They thought he was making divine claims, and they went to take control over him. Um, I think what's clear is that James and the family are, they're embarrassed by Jesus. And then James says that Jesus appeared to him. Now, uh, I think, I don't think there's any explanation that really holds water there other than he had a real experience. A third one would be Thomas. Even though Thomas was an apostle, he wasn't initially present when Jesus revealed himself to the other apostles, and he doubted. You know, I'm not going to believe it unless I can put my finger in the wounds, the nail wounds, put my hand in his side. We're told he had an experience and saw the resurrected Christ. So the empty tomb, then the appearances but then think of the transformation of these people. I mean, um, these are, you know, a lot of times skeptics will say Christian people, even people in the Bible, they're, very, they're gullible, they're, they, <laughs> they believe anything, uh, they're not critical thinkers. Well, here you have three people who are predisposed not to believe it, and, and, and they're transformed. So... I think if you look at the empty tomb, you look at the appearances, and you look at the transformed lives, those are uh, those are reasons that have led people like uh, N.T. Wright, Gary Habermas, to say that uh, the evidence for the resurrection is is very powerful. And by the way, many of the critics, you know, the Jesus Seminar, these are very liberal, progressive, biblical scholars. They, they're skeptics. They don't deny the. They don't deny the story of the empty tomb. They don't deny that people claim to have had experiences, and they don't deny that Paul and uh, James and uh, Thomas were transformed. Now, they might say, "Well, maybe it was a hallucination." But here, here's a fourth reason, if I could bring it in. All of the. Uh, all of the alternative naturalistic explanations, they all fail miserably. So something happened, and there ought to be a good explanation. I think the good explanation is, as extraordinary as it may be, Jesus actually rose from the dead. And and, and, and Bill, think about that. I mean, you know, we all know that a, that a cemetery is in our future. We all know that. If Jesus conquered death, there isn't anything more important than that truth. And that's what birthed the church, and that's what drove Christianity to, to go from one Messiah with 12 apostles to, within three or 400 years, the dominant religion of the Roman Empire, and then today, the largest religion in the world with 
2.2 to 2.3 billion people who claim to be a follower of Jesus. Mm. And then the fact that the Gospels were completed within a very reasonable amount of time after the resurrection event, so that was 40 to 60 years, there are a lot of people that were, uh, that were still alive when the Gospels came out, that if they That's weren't such, true, they would have been instantly discredited. That's such an important point. I mean, th- this, this happens very quickly. There were people still living who could testify to it. It's not like, for example, in Buddhism, where we don't know what century the Buddha is born in, and then his teachings come three, four, six hundred years later. We're talking about minimum 25 to, to 40 years later. That's not a long time. Yeah. Ken, if I published a book called The Complete History of New York and I left out the 9-11 attacks, how many copies do you think I'd sell? There'd be a lot of New Yorkers <laughs> that uh, wouldn't be happy, and uh, they'd be taking the task for it. Yeah, I would get discredited very quickly, and I don't think the book would sell very well. So if these resurrection claims... You know, it took place with people still alive, they would have said, no, that's not how it happened. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So let's, uh, if you, we've just got a few minutes left here, but um, maybe you would talk about some of the famous biblical and Christian leaders who have claimed religious experiences. Kind of, kind of an out yeah. there question at this time, but I think you're up for it. Yeah, there's a lot of them. I mean, um, let me mention just a few of the biblical figures. I mean, Abraham has an extraordinary experience with God. Um, You know, the whole story of uh, Abraham and his son Isaac, Moses claims to encounter Yahweh, you know, the burning bush, uh, and is is given the commandments um, and leads the exodus. These are extraordinary events. Mm -hmm. I mentioned the Apostle Paul, the transformation. But now, Bill, I could also mention many of the greatest intellectual people in in the Christian world have had these events. St. Augustine is one of the most influential Christian thinkers outside of the Bible. He had an encounter with God. So did Thomas Aquinas, who is many people consider maybe the brightest bulb in Western civilization. Um, Even Martin Luther had an encounter with the Lord. Uh, Blaise Pascal, it's not uncommon for people to have direct appearances with God. Hmm. So then I guess it gets back to this way to have any kind of authenticity and I guess you can't really challenge people too much when it comes to their own experience, can you? Well, certainly there is a there is an element that religious experience has kind of a private, personal, and subjective nature. And then, of course, people are going to immediately say, "Well, that's just psychological. You just you just had a psychological experience." But Bill, you know, there are philosophers who would argue that a that a spiritual experience is analogous to an empirical experience, Mm. uh, that you can make a case that this person had an encounter. And, you know, um, some of these people, their lives were really transformed. Human beings' lives are not easily transformed. Yeah. People leaving alcohol, leaving various addictions, you know, moving out of catastrophic, terrible experiences and having their lives restored, 
those are not small things. Yeah. Ken, we've got a minute left, and I hate to do this to you, but have you have you had tell me some tell me about your religious experience. I did. I, I, I was 19 years old and I, I had a dream and, uh, it was an extraordinary event. I, I felt like I was in a cave and there was a hole in the wall, looked like a window and a man's face appeared in the window. And at first it it startled me because I thought, man, that guy is not, uh, attractive, but I looked closer and his face looked like it had been beaten. It was swollen. And then, then the man spoke, and it was like thunder. And I woke up out of bed, sweaty, and I, 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 I didn't know if I was still dreaming. And then, Bill, uh, partly because of that dream, and partly because of other things, I went out and got a Bible, something I'd never, I'd never read the Bible before. I started going to church, something I hadn't done as a kid. My parents said, "Wow, something has gotten into you." My friends said. <laughs> It's like night and day, wow. and I committed my life to Jesus Christ. Now, do I know with 100% certainty that that was a veridical experience, that is a direct experience with God? No, I can't say that, but, you know, my life was, was changed. It was restored. I, I became more humble. I became more interested in loving relationships. I... I think that experience is consistent yeah. with my Christian belief. What a way to end. Ken Samples, thank you so much. Great to have Pleasure you on the show. Pleasure to be with you, Bill. Thank, thank you. you. Christianity Examined is Ken's book. That wraps up our show for the day. Thanks so much. I hope you have a wonderful night. I am already excited. Thanks to be for with listening. You Programming tomorrow. like this is See made available soon. through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.